Podcasting from Alexandria, Virginia, just a few miles from Washington, D.C., where we all hope doing what is right the first time is everyone's top priority. This is Software Quality Today, presented by TX3 Services, where we empower life science companies to digitally transform their software testing. This is a podcast for industry professionals about the trends and challenges of software quality testing, computerized systems validation, and the people who are leading the way. We'll be providing you with interviews from special guests, as well as news from thought leaders at leading life sciences organizations and vendors alike. And now here's your host, CSV expert and VP of strategic solutions at TX3 Services, Dory Gonzalez Acevedo. This is Software Quality Today, and I'm your host, Dory Gonzalez Acevedo. It's my pleasure today to bring you the recording of a panel discussion that I presented on October 14th, 2020, Moving the Needle, CSV and SDLC Modernization in Life Sciences. It was a panel discussion with Elise Deegan, former Director of Computer Systems Validation, Seattle Genetics, Priyam Carde, Director of Quality Assurance at AbbVie, formerly Allergan, Rachel Ramundo, Executive Director, Global Systems Assurance at AbbVie, formerly Allergan, and Wendy Zabrana, Director of IT Quality at Biogen. It's never been more apparent that change is happening around us, and how one adapts to that change will really set us apart from each other. The senior leadership panel shared with us their personal reflections on the current state of CSV industry, challenges, and observations that they've all encountered, and some of the ways in which their organizations helped adapt to those changes. We've covered both perspectives from the IT side as well as the quality side, and looked for ways in which those key partnerships can be changed and talked about in new ways. What do we need to come together to in order to move forward as one organization? Without further ado, this is Software Quality Today. Well, welcome. Um, before we start, I just want to mention that all the, the views and points of views that we're going to talk about today are your personal views and not necessarily ones represented by your companies. Um, so I just put that out there to everyone. And um, while we get started, I think, Wendy, you pointed out that that today, you know, given COVID and what, what it is in the world, this is a really relevant topic today. And I think that's where we're going to start off with some of our questions. Um, so let's get started. Um, I know, you know, as life sciences, we've had to really pivot and move really fast during COVID in the last several months. And that has put dramatic different um, demands on all of us. Um, in general, our industry has always been pushed to go faster you know, change and evolve. But this has been an even more um, very, very prescriptive way in which we've had to really shift and change. You guys have been insiders in observing this change. Um, and so I'm wondering, what do you think some of the unique challenges that you've seen impacted um, by the change in your SDLC or CSV processes, people and technologies today? And uh, at least if you, um, oh, Birdham, if you want to start us off there. Sure, yeah. Yeah, you rightly mentioned, right? This, uh, this COVID pandemic has, in my opinion, it has highlighted two key points, um, right? First, you need to be able to adapt and rely on technology. There is just no other option. You cannot be physically present doing tasks that you didn't even imagine doing remotely before. In, in our personal lives, if you see, we, you know, our physicians have opted for telemedicine. Unless something is very critical, you're not even going and visiting them in the office. And same thing has happened in our industry as well. So, uh, you know, it's clear if you don't adapt to new ways and start relying on these tools, you can no longer uh, run your business and um, you cannot provide the service that your patients rely on you for. 
Um, right. The second aspect I see is uh, agility in adopting this technology and tools that are available. You couldn't plan for this. You sort of just had to move on, right, with the uh, new tools and system implementations while making sure patient safety and product quality is not impacted. And this is where critical thinking comes in picture. You have to absolutely focus on right areas, making sure your business operations resume to somewhat normalcy and, uh, and and you're not compromising on quality. Um, so those are the those are the key areas I feel that were highlighted because of COVID situation. And being an insider, I uh, this has been actually a good experience in 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 this um, crazy pandemic situation. I feel like you know this gave tremendous confidence for me that uh, CSA professionals and quality professionals are nimble and agile. Um, and adopting these tools and technologies and uh, and still maintain quality as our core value. So that has been very encouraging for me. Wendy, I, I suspect all cultures aren't the same, right? So what no, is your... No, <laughs> no absolutely. You're spot on. When you're thinking about agility, one of the things that COVID has kind of highlighted is our barriers to execution. Um, you start looking at your quality management system. Is it does it have built in the agility that we need to adapt and, and kind of pivot? Um, if you think about historically pre-COVID, historically, um, when you think about it, how long we had to implement something in new technology, a new way of working, we were able to talk with stakeholders. You're able to do kind of a needs assessment. We had all the time in the world. And with COVID, you just didn't have that luxury to spend six months and trying to figure out the way to implement a new technology. Um, so it's something that we should embrace, we should adopt and look to continue moving in that direction and not just regress once we're, we're past this global pandemic and, and go back to our old ways. Um, we also have to look at our QMS, right? It does Is it structured in a way that we're able to pivot as we need to, or is it so rigid um, that unfortunately you have to revamp in order to adopt new processes? Um, so this is where having that great partnership with your quality function and who understands where you're looking to go directionally and that vision and they are able to provide that guidance on how to make that shift yeah great thanks Um, Rochelle I know you have some thoughts around yeah I mean what I've observed um, especially COVID I really feel like brought it to the forefront is is especially those areas where there's that paper dependency Um, and and it really has brought in forefront, the topic of discussion more and more about paperless validation, tools like HPLM or DocuSign, and it's forcing us to think out of the box, keep up with the business. And it's actually a good thing, as Preeta mentioned, because it's enabled critical thinking. Uh, people are being more open-minded and collaborating, saying, okay, what do we need to do to meet the business needs, right? So we can't we can't rely on paper. So do we need to put in interim solutions for now? Because we got to keep the, the business going. That's not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And then really in the long run, figuring out and planning more strategic roadmaps to move towards that paperless validation and agile and enable new ways of working. So I really think this has really maybe helped us open the doors even more. That's great. Elise, I know you've got, you've had to really shift and pivot dramatically to get stuff done. Yeah, I, I think just like Rochelle just said, it highlighted where throughout the business, the reliance on paper GXP forms and those wet signatures. So it really made us say, okay, what are those platforms that we really need to get up and running quickly, which is, you know, like your DocuSign GX, um, the Part 11 signature. But what one of the real benefits that the panel just talked about is for the first time, I feel we really all got in the room and did real risk scenarios. 
and real risk management together with our critical thinking. And we did it quickly. So just like Wendy said, I hope we don't backtrack. I hope we honestly keep that same behavior of all coming around the table and really putting all of our thoughts together. And what is the real risk if we do it this way? Yeah, so, so that's a great um, lead into the, the next question, right? So historically, life sciences has been really kind of slow to adopt and move and shift, right? Um, do you think we're going to be able to, to change that? I mean, so what are your thoughts around there? Yeah, I think, I mean, just to follow on, I, I do think we have to. I do think this isn't going to be the first time. And we've always prepared for systems going down, but this is the first time that we've really had to say the systems are up, but are they the right systems to enable our people and processes? So I think after this gets by, I think we're going to start to build those business continuity plans much differently, and we'll all have this experience to leverage on. Rochelle, what are some of the things that have made it hard to do that shift historically? What do you think? I mean, I think personally, it's um, people are comfortable. People have been doing the, you know, working in the same way for a long time. I think um, maybe because of consent degrees and and such, people are uh, afraid of getting observations. Uh, it's it's people really. Oh my God, I got an observation, and they're not looking at it as continuous improvement. And um, I think as CSV professionals, we need to take a step back and say, you know something? Just like everybody else running their business, we have to take a risk based approach. And if we get an observation, um, how do we continuously improve? Of course, we got to make sure we're keeping product. You know, they got it's got to go out the door, but in from a CSV perspective, I think, um, you know, we need to figure out it's okay and say to ourselves, it's okay to get an observation, right? That's going to just spark. So I, I personally think that's just people are comfortable. And uh, I also think technology is another reason. Rapidly changing technology, right? People are not comfortable with some of that. What does that mean? You know, do I really have to validate everything or should I be leveraging some of those vendors out there that that's where their expertise is and what can we leverage? So it's, it's some of those things that I just think, um, again, just taking a step back, being open minded and partnership and working together to overcome those, yeah. those factors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point about observations, right? I I honestly feel like even if you get observations, you have to really see what those observations are stemming from, because being this space is not going to give you observations. Um, missing out something critical is right. So many times it's easy to say, "Oh, I didn't do IQOQ, PQO, and uh, properly or thoroughly." Um, but that's, that observation is most likely issued because you've missed some business scenario that was very critical and that impacted downstream product quality and patient safety, right? So really that analysis is also very important um, in, in understanding where, where exactly this is uh, standing so from. Where is it broken? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And to add to a little bit to what Pritam is saying, it's like people shouldn't be afraid of observations. I, I think that that's our general tendency. Like we have to make our system so robust and maybe overly cumbersome or be so conservative because we're afraid of that observation. I'm not saying that we should rush out there to get an observation for failure of QA oversight. But if you have a process and there's risk-based methodologies built into that, you have a justification and a rationale behind it. 
that's a conversation you can have. Um, the regulations are, are written, a lot of the regulations are written very vague and very subjective for a reason, right? Because there's different ways to implement it. Mm-hmm. So it's really having that thought process and being able to articulate that. And that goes a long way with the regulators. They're, they're willing to have that conversation to better understand your approach and your thought and making sure that when you're putting that strategy behind it, when you're putting that justification, you've kept the patient, the product quality, all that in mind. That's really what they're looking for in, in your in your QMS. It's, um, and I love what you guys are saying. I know that there's going to be a lot more changes, you know, so COVID is this one thing, but we all, I think have experienced that those, these types of rapid changes and the adjustment to those are going to need to be, you know, over and over and over again, moving forward. Do you guys have some practical things that you think, um, organizations need to start thinking about? or implementing? Wendy, I know that there's parts of, um, and Rochelle too, I know the the CSA model and how does that necessarily fit in here, um, you know, in our shifting of, of being more agile, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, I think what we have to do is take a look at our QMS CSA, right, has really opened the door. What they're trying to do with that is say, change the perception of what CSV is. Um, I don't think anything is changing from a regulation perspective. And actually, I know that there's nothing changing from a regulation perspective. What they're trying to do is clarify what does risk-based mean? How do you apply some different techniques? The fact that technology is changing, there's, it doesn't always have to be IQ, OQPQ, slash UAT, right? There's different ways of testing. Everything doesn't have to be scripted, perhaps. And really focusing on that the system is working as intended and not so much the, you know, uh, checklist and document for the sake of documentation. So I think how organizations need to proceed is, is look, FDA and regulators are opening the doors, take a step back, you know, look at your processes, partner with your quality group, um, and, and start um, taking advantage of the fact that this is 2020, it's a new era, you know, and, and I think that's actually, you know, it's a culture mindset, but I think, um, you know, and it's exciting. Right. This is a special time for CSV professionals. It's a time where we can all grow. It gets me, you know, very positive, as you can see. I'm very passionate about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because COVID has really um, helped us think very creatively. You know, when COVID hit, there was a mandate to work from home for the most part, right, for non-essential employees. Mm -hmm. And the focus was so much about keeping the business running. Um, And then from a QA standpoint, you have to think about how can I keep the business running in a compliant manner? And now that things are a bit normalized, right, we have this new way of working, we can look at how we implemented those interim processes and decide, should we be embedding that into our existing QMS, right? We took the time to assess risk quickly, put mitigating controls in place. So why not take advantage of all those thought processes and framework and see how we can apply it more broadly outside of the lens of COVID. There really is this opportunity to assess or revisit your QMS and make sure that it's it's working, not so much how it is today, but is it working for you in the future? And really, does it do we have that agility built into it? Right, future-proofing or right-sizing. Yeah. Uh, Elise, did you have a... 
Just to go with that, I think it's really good if we know our metrics too. So during COVID, how long did it really take us to do change controls, validations, and things like that? Because it would be great to measure against that. Like, how come we were so efficient when we all got in a room during COVID and streamlined processes? But if you look back here, why did it take us 50% longer? So just like you said, Wendy, I think it's a great metric to look at. Know ourselves, right? So we know what we're doing throughout. Well, working it. by deadline is a is a big thing. I mean, I say a lot to my developers, you only get four weeks. <laughs> like this is it. You have four weeks. Yeah. You, you know, it's and when you open up to Wendy's earlier point, you were saying like you had all the time in the world. When you don't put these, you know, deadlines on things, or maybe in this case, they weren't really artificial deadlines. They were true, like you gotta work in order to meet the business need, right? Like those things really, really do matter and it shifts perspective. And I think our industry was, right? We have adopted this based approach for a while, but even in variation. And this COVID really pushed us hard to do things um, a a lot more risk-based. So, yeah, I completely agree with what you guys just said. So this has been a good opportunity. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, part of... So what we've seen in COVID, right, is is this this dramatic shift forward. Um, But we've also seen, I think, parts of you have talked to and spoken to that the change of technology is happening so fast, right? And we're really... Um, easy to adopt that in our own personal lives, right? So we have our iPhones, where our devices in our hands, we have self-driving cars, we have our banking information in, in, in easy technology. But but for some reason, internally in our organization, sometimes we, we don't necessarily reflect that balanced approach to risk-based. Um, so how do you each see risk-based approaches being utilized or not utilized? And, and can they be used more effectively? No, I'm sorry, Wendy, go ahead. Does... No, I was, I was going to say to, to Rochelle's earlier point, so there's a lot of factors, right? What does your inspection history look like? Have you had a lot of observations? Sorry, did you get a warning letter, consent degree? There's a lot of inputs where if you're getting those observations, you now are looking at internally your QMS and you're going to be more conservative. You're going to swing the other way. Um, there's also your experience of your SMEs. Where, what exposure have they had? Of? If you're looking at how many markets your products are approved in, right? There's different regulations. So there's a lot of variables at play when you're looking about how to implement a new technology or or move away from a mainstream process. I know companies have been implementing risk-based methodologies. You have to, right? It's too costly not to implement them and it's just not a sustainable model. Um, so I think that it just goes down to who are your stakeholders, who who can really put that input as where do we want to go? And I think it's just sitting down and having that conversation. What isn't working? What is, is working? And how do we, how do we manage that? Like we all have been talking about what we've done so much during COVID. Um, Why have we been able to operationalize things so quickly? It's still within the context of the regulations. We're still being compliant. So why not? It's it's still really taking advantage of that and, and moving that forward. I think everybody wants to do it, but I think it's, are they waiting for QA to drive that conversation? I think everyone has a, say and a stake and sitting at that table to have that conversation. I think sometimes what you may see is waiting for QA to change the QMS versus partnering with QA, talking about that vision and saying, okay, how do we work together to change it? 
No, I, I couldn't agree more with that, Wendy. And I also feel like another area is that we can um, be a little bit more effective with is, is I, as I spoke about before, is leveraging, right? Leveraging our vendor. More and more, we have COT systems. And, and you know, a risk-based approach is about really focusing based on your assessments, you know, those items that are um, impacting uh, patient safety and product quality, you know, data integrity, focus on those elements and, and, um, also, the complexity of your solution and whether or not it's a vendor that, you know, has is is a state of, uh, recognized in the industry, right? You know that the, that's a solution is being used throughout, right? And not just testing to test, uh, leverage that, leverage their um, functional requirements. And we should really be uh, more effective as figuring out our intended use, what are our scenarios, and that, and we should focus our testing on that and, and also figure out what is the level of documentation around that really required, right? Do we do we really need screenshots for everything? So it's those kinds of things that I think, again, focusing, we should be all playing with our systems, but, you know, focusing on doing the right balance of documentation and testing. Yeah, and to add on to that, I think when you said everyone's around the table to add into the risk-based approaches we're using, but I think for us as teams to take the time and understand this is not product software, this is supporting software, and really all think of what we're using the software for, what is the what is the business process maturity as well as the vendor, because the vendor software maturity and how they're in life sciences is a huge data point, but even internally, what is our business process? process and how mature is that in the software. But I, I often think sometimes we jump right into the scoring when we're sitting around the table, but we haven't synced up on the true use, our intended use as a company of this software. And then we get in these conversations back and forth, you know, about detectability, everything like that, without really syncing up at a high level. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I, the only other point I would add is, you know, apart from our intended use, I think we have to also start relying more on our IT and understand the complexity in technology that we are using, right? And that kind of gives you some confidence that, okay, you know, I don't have to worry about this area. It's really business critical, but this is where technology is playing role in ensuring there is no risk there, right? So it's it's like you all said, it's a balance. What are we using it for? What is vendor providing? What is technology providing? And then marrying that all together and coming up with an approach that works for everything. So, so I love what you're all saying, and you're all saying the same thing. Um, and at the same time, as a consultant, I know if I ask one QA person from one organization one thing and another one from another, I'm going to probably get a different answer. Um, so how do you guys... Or, you know, how do you struggle with that? How do you manage that within your organizations? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's a perfect thing to ask. And I've held both roles in QA and IT. And it's almost like each regulator, right, has a way different interpretation of our code, you know, the regulations. But I think the big thing is if we could really sit around the table and understand, especially when we have several QA um, perspectives at the table, is to really try to ask the questions to get at the risk. Because I think often if we, we as a team or an 
IT person don't understand the risk that the QA um, professional is trying to tell us about, we're we're not we're going to miss it. And then I I also think if we see just a huge gap and way different subjectiveness in the way we're doing projects, we really got to go back and get work instructions and really tie down some some clear understanding of our strategy because that's where teams, you know, teams should be learning each validation project they're on. They should be getting better and better as they move on to another one. But if it's a moving target, not only is it really hard for teams to understand the the strategy, but also it causes frustration, right? Because they'll say, well, the last project I did this and it was okay, but this project's not. So I think it's, again, that syncing up and understanding what's the risk. And we're all humans. We come with backgrounds. We come, we could have gotten an audit finding from a decision. So our risk tolerance levels are different, but we always have to remember even our products has, we have residual risk everywhere, even in the products we put to market. So we, we've all got to get comfortable with you. We can't get rid of risk, right? But, you know, and just to understand it from the QA perspective. Oh, I, I completely agree, Elise, and, and I'm, I'm smiling because I'm in a QA role, so I completely understand, and I've also been the other side, so I completely understand everyone's frustration and sign, but part of it is also QA needs to be a part of that journey, right? A lot of time, it's like, well, we'll let QA know at the very end, mm-hmm. and, and so they haven't had the chance to take part in the conversation, understand the background, understand the context, which goes a long way in terms of assessing risk. If you don't know that everyone has asked the questions and really thought about it, you're just seeing the final product. And right. so now I, we have to catch up and ask the same questions and people get frustrated and we're missing deadlines. So I think it's really important to build QA into the design, into the process, into the beginning of those conversations. So, so we can go along that journey and we can kind of talk real time um, and not after the fact. Like QA really needs to understand the strategy and the vision because they need to be able to defend this as well as the SME. SME. If you think about observations, you always see failure of, of the QA oversight or failure of the quality unit lack. So QA is in every observation for the most part. So you can see where we need to understand and not just be told of a decision, really understand it, really be able to partner at it. So that way we can support in an inspection and any other conversations, be able to really stand on our own on that decision. Um, so it, it's it's really funny. And to look at work instruction, you're absolutely right. There is value in having consistency. So if there are processes that you can put procedures or work instructions together to kind of help with that <laughs> consistency around the QA, um, oversight and the QA governance, then it, it's really better beneficial yeah, yeah. See, Randy you kind of spoke my mind I'm sorry Rochelle no go ahead um, you know getting QA involved from beginning that's such a key I completely agree and I also agree with Alicia that you know asking that question is really critical what are you worried about what is it that you're seeing that I'm not seeing you know being having that open mind and asking questions getting to the root cause of their concern QA concern that's the key to resolve any conflict that you're having. And from QA perspective, I I feel like, you know, I tend to have a lot of meetings. Everybody is encouraged to speak their minds and challenge the status quo, right? Bring new ideas and such. But then again, regroup and make sure we're still on the right path, right? And learn from each other's experiences. So having those conversations within our QA team, that's also really critical. That helps a lot in driving that consistency. 
because as much as I understand that we have to really take brunt of uh, all the inspection findings, you know, I, I do see how, what others are saying about being frustrated with different QA giving different opinions. And, you know, as a QA professional, I feel like it's my job to make sure my team is kind of on the going in the same direction um, and, and meeting that ultimate goal of having good quality product out there. No, I agree. And, and, and I do think it's a balance because I also know that, you know, all of us agree that it's not a one size fits all as well. So you need those flexible processes. And, you know, Freedom and I, we, we really have a great relationship. Um, you know, uh, you know, I'm in IT, she's in quality, and we really have partnered because we both recognize that. And we want to update our processes so that it's flexible. We want people to think out of the box. And then if there's um, we want people to speak up, right? It, this, you know, validation is not black and white. It's gray, right? And there's a lot going to be a lot of difference of opinions. And and if and at those times where the teams need to learn or, or we can't agree, then you know, Freedom and I have come together with the teams, and that's actually how we've driven continuous improvement. So that partnership, listening and learning from each other and working together is so so important in building uh, that trust between quality and, and IT. That's what worked, I think, for us. I'm, I'm sure Freedom, you know, can also speak to that. That as well, Absolutely. but I really, yeah. I really feel that that you know that um, we have one on ones all the time. I think that's really key. Yeah, I think what you said about the partnership. I think that partnership is as critical as the partnership with quality and manufacturing. I think that IT and quality partnership mm -hmm. is critical throughout. Oh, absolutely. And, and Freedom and Rochelle, you're very fortunate because the CSV function does not exist in a lot of companies. And when you have a good CSV partner with quality, that that pairing is unstoppable. The things that can that can get accomplished when you have the right partners at the table, right balance, each person is kind of looking out. CSV is looking out for QA, QA is looking out for CSV. It is something to, to it's a force to be reckoned with. And it's unfortunate that we don't have more companies, more industries really adopting the CSV function. Yeah, especially with technology, like we've talked about, it's like foundational, right? It's foundational in what we're doing in everything that we do. So it'll be interesting to your point, Wendy. That's a great, great point. If more and more companies may may see that again, CSV professional, it's it's really a role, right? Because that to me is a a, a big, uh, you know, that liaison kind of role, like you, we were, you know, talking about before. It's a you need that to be able to to get the business technical quality, you know, all the stakeholders, and and make sure we're all speaking the same language because we all have different perspectives. And so I think part of what I've heard and also what you guys are saying is the technology is shifting and changing, right? And we've been slow to adopt that, but I think that there's also been some people process problems with the adoption, right? So can you guys speak a little bit more to why, why aren't we adopting tools and technologies fast enough? Well, I do think it's overwhelming. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I, you know, you go to these, um, these, you know, all these different tools now with agile. I mean, you know, eggplant and cucumber, like, I can't believe that's technology. Um, it's, it's overwhelming a little bit and I'll admit, right. And I'm, I'm taking a step back and it takes some time to learn what makes the most sense in the environment that I'm in, what tools make the most sense. How will that help me? Right. What's the value, but just because it's a little overwhelming, doesn't mean we shouldn't do. We have to start jumping and those tools aren't going to go away, but you just have to pick the right tools for you. Just like 
all of us deal with every day. We implement systems all the time, right, for our business. But for some reason, the SDLC and your CSV process, you know, what makes up building your systems, you know, that kind of falls a little bit um, in the background and, and people forget. But if you don't have a good methodology and the right tools, you're not going to be able to keep up with the business needs. There's no way. We can't, we won't be able to be fat, go fast enough. And we have to, that's ultimately what our job is. So I, I just think that might be, you know, part of the hard time and, and keeping current and such. Kareem, mm -hmm. did you want to add something? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, yeah, I mean, Richard rightly said, right? It's overwhelming. And um, it's also the mindset sometimes that we all have. Right. Many times we hear it is not broken, why fix it? It's it's working fine for us. Right. But but then that's that's a missed opportunity to really adapt new, new tools and um it, it, you know, add efficiency, build efficiency and reduce those risk factors. Um I think what helps in this whole thing is first of all getting comfortable with the technology and relying a little bit more on your IT partners understand that they they are understanding the complexities with those technologies and and ask the right questions so that you understand the risks associated with that technology, right? Once you see the bigger picture and you really pinpoint those risk areas and you take care of those risk areas, I think everybody's going to feel comfortable um, going and, and, you know, going forward with these new tools and technologies at their end. Yeah, and just to add on to that, just like you said, the IT partners, I think we, as they're out there looking at these cutting edge tools that really shift the business, they enable the business, some of the tools out there um, save the business so much time in the product lifecycle, man, the whole way through. We need to educate the IT team out there looking at technology, like keep your eye on for these five things, right? Because what we don't want to happen is, you know, a quality, a CSV group coming in at the end and saying, didn't you look if they can do audit trails? Didn't you look if they can do this? So we kind of have to give them a base education as they're out there talking to the snowflakes of the world, everything like that. They know enough to ask some questions, even with our assessment. But I think that will give them comfortable, you know, give them comfort early on. And also it helps our vendors because some of these vendors have the best technology, but they might not have a QM, a quality system built up within mm -hmm. their technology shop. Those questions are often not asked initially either. And that also yep. from the vendor side, a very big frustration is I'm dealing with an IT person, but they don't know what the quality people want. Now, fortunately, I am from a quality background. I know what to present, right? But then the IT people don't know what they need either. So mm -hmm. I am often at the 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 beckon of whoever's asked for the stuff, right? And sometimes, many times, it's not the right people at the table mm -hmm. to have those conversations. Yeah. Wendy, do you have? Did you want to? Mention? Sure. Uh, just kind of, I think uh, Rachel and Priya um, really touched upon it, right? It's if it's working, why fix it? And also, once you kind of been ingrained in a given solution, it's really hard to look at another one. Like it's time, it's money, it's commitment from the business and, and the other stakeholders. If you or your data migration comes into consideration, there's so many different things when you're going, it's one thing to go from paper to a, techn uh, a technical solution. Another thing is to go from one technology to another, right? There's different variables to consider. And it's really, 
the the company's appetite to want to keep up with the new technology? What is the return on their investment? Like, are we going to get more compliant? Are we going to get more agile? Um, are we simplifying our processes? You know, a lot of times when we move from paper to to a technical solution, we want the exact same process, and we tend to over customize our solutions. And then when there's a new functionality that the vendor releases, we're unable to take advantage of it because of our over customization. So I think for for us to really try to keep current, we have to go back to our processes, see how we can leverage existing functionality and see why does this work? Why can't it, why can it not work for us? Right. As opposed to going, I'm so, I'm so ingrained or I'm so, um, it's really hard for me to change. I, I like having this e-signature at every gate. Well, do we really need to? Or do you feel more comfortable for it, right? What is it? What is the compliance concern? What is the regulation? What are we buying with that with that gate of e-signature, for example? So it's really looking to simplify your processes and seeing how we can make the technology work for us versus trying to configure the technology to to make it to to be what we want it to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I think also part of what you guys are um, talking about is the, the lost opportunities, um, right? If, so what happens? What are some of the challenges when you're not keeping up with that technology? What are you guys um, seeing there too? I think as part of the customization talk, but I also suspect there's a lot around you know, this notion of keeping data forever. And when you have to upgrade, you have to consider all the, the costs associated to all those things. What do you think about those sorts of things that are keeping you from, from moving forward? Well, I can certainly kind of add on from the the archiving and, and the it is we we do keep data. I would say what I've seen is that we tend to keep data forever because we just don't know. <laughs> and but we have retention programs. We have everything that's telling us it, it's okay. But I think it's just that and maybe it's that human nature of like I maybe we'll need to reference it at some point. So I think that's part of the challenge of of not being comfortable to say we're at a point where we don't need this data. We can we can destroy. It, we can delete it. Um, so instead of doing that, we keep everything and then we just keep compiling that data increasing storage costing more money so it makes it very difficult to to move to other systems because we were carrying all our baggage with us or if you choose not to and we choose to go straight to new system we keep both running so we keep the for the legacy system running because that's where the data is because we don't know what to do with it and now we have the new system so you really haven't saved anything from a cost perspective yeah, and I think another yeah. challenge is by not keeping up with technologies, you you don't have technology that's supported. You don't have technology that um, is up to date with cybersecurity and and stuff like that, especially at, in the manufacturing, and because you know people are afraid. You know, twenty four seven, it's hard to get in there to try to make the updates and the patches. Um, so, and then the other challenge is again, if if we, in terms of building systems. Um, don't continue to evolve and automate as much as we can, build, build quality into our systems, figure out how we can work more agile, the business will start going out and getting technology without IT. And we don't want that to happen as well, right? And, and you know, I've seen it. There have been times where business is going out. They've already chosen the vendor. Um, and, and then somebody, I think, Elise, you were bringing up, we're brought in at the end and, and then they get frustrated but the reason why, you know, they say they've done that is because we're too slow in the perception of, you know, because we have to validate and it's slowing down our process. So we, you know, again, that's really our challenge, right? As CSV professionals, what do we need to do to work with the business so that that they don't feel that, that it's a burden? They understand why we're doing what we need to do, but we're also taking a step back and taking a look at how we do things and focusing on the right things. So 
Absolutely. And, and you know, you you said this, you brought up this interesting point where they're going to, business is going to go out and select technology with or without you, right? That that introduces risk. Other aspect I've seen is if you don't provide the tools to them, they are going to think about creative ways to make their lives simpler, right? And that's where we start seeing, oh, I have a spreadsheet that does this calculation. It's pretty easy to use. And then that also introduces new risks that nobody thought of, right? Business is just trying to cope with the speed that they need. And and they came up with these creative solutions. It's not their fault. Um, so we have to be the change agent. We have to really be good with adopting this new technology and, and not being the roadblock. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also think the vendors are keeping up with the industry. And if we can't keep yeah. revising or bringing on new technology and keeping up with the latest version, a lot of times new regulations come out that get built into that software. To, and if we can't keep up with that, we really put our business at risk because if we're like five versions behind and that software has been changed to address a new regulation or something, we're really putting our business at risk by not keeping up. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of leads us into our next um, topic around, um, you guys have talked around, you know, the, being this effective partner. Um, what what can we do as CSB professionals to, to help facilitate that partnership? Freedom? Sure. Yeah. So I, I in my personal view, I, I think we need to encourage our teams to go out there and learn these new tools. At least be aware that these tools exist outside, right? Um, follow industry trends outside our life science industry sometimes is important. Um, like, for example, this DevOps, um, it, it, it has been in use for financial industry for many, many years. And our industry has been kind of lagging behind. And it's, it's coming in picture now. Like, a lot of people are asking that in our industry now. Um, so knowing, being aware of these technologies, these new tools uh, out, are out there, that's one important aspect. Also, I think we really need to work hard at being enablers of quality culture in our uh, group. We're not, we're not the, like I always tell my team, we're not the cops at the end. We really need to enable um, for quality to be core value for everybody that's involved in the product development and product rollout. And, and really rely on them to follow these um, uh, rules and regulations along the way. And somebody else uh, said this earlier on. We really need to educate them, right, so that they ask the right questions. They're thinking like we are going to think at the end. And, and so we work in harmony that way. Rochelle? No, it's a great point, Freedom. And I think another way that we can help be effective partners is, is really making sure that, um, you know, business, you know, technical quality, they really understand that we're all stakeholders in <clears throat> delivering new solutions or updating solutions. We all have a stake in the game. And um, because a lot of times what I, you know, people will say, well, that's an IT process. That's an IT project. And I think it's really important that we're educating and making sure people understand, no, 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 you know, this is the role you play and this is why it's so important. Um, 
So I think that's that's way one way. The other is that we've got a lot of um, millennials coming that are really uh, very comfortable with technology. They want to use it. They're excited about it. They actually, I think it's actually in their blood, in their DNA, that they're used to just testing and playing with it. And I think um, as, as CSV professionals, we need to take a step back and learn from them and, and get them engaged, you know, also try to figure out who are the people that can help us, you know, along with the business, you know, get them where they need to be. So I just think there's, a, you know, a whole new generation out there that really can help evolve, um, you know, and help us with this transformation from a CSV perspective. I I, I, com- I completely agree with Freedom and Rochelle, what you're saying. I also think it's unfair to put everything on a CSV function or a CSV individual, right? We, as we, we've said, everyone has a stake in this conversation. So we have a responsibility to educate ourselves on, on how we each play a role here. If you're thinking about there's communities of practice, there's benchmarking consortiums that we can all participate, right? That you have that benefit of, of talking with other companies, talking with other individuals who are different points in their journey. We, we have startups who are trying to figure out how to go from paperless to a technical solution. We have we have companies who are more mature in their model that we can take advantage of lessons learned and really having that more intimate Q&A. So I think we all have a responsibility. It's not QA's roles, not CSV roles, it's every stakeholder in making that decision part of that life cycle to understand what role they can play or how they what they can bring to the table. Yeah, I- so I think we need to remarket CSV function as well sometimes because you know we we were looked at as like paying taxes. Someone told me that one day, like you're like a tax collector, and I'm like what? <laughs> but so I think you know we need to remarket. And I, what I do say we need to do for our teams and ourselves is really understand our business internally, so we can really start asking the right questions, risk based. And like you said, why aren't we? having the business do that informal testing way up front and say, just test it, you know, help them test it informally up front. And then we can say, this is the only CSV testing we'll do. But I think to understand the business and also, like you said, to go outside, I mean, outside of life sciences, just to see what are they doing with machine learning? What are they doing with AI? What are they doing with test automation? Because the way they can flex and move and you can walk into a store and you don't even have to go to check out and just automatically like the Amazon stores. I mean, they've got the technology and for us to really look at it and say, how could we leverage that in life sciences? But we have to know our business, right? We definitely have to know our business inside our own walls. Yeah. So what you're all saying, and I think we, we, as we were working on preparing for this, we kind of summarized that if the goal is to enable our business to roll out products to market, and to patients while ensuring safety and quality the fastest way possible, you know, that if that is our role, right, what makes it hard to, to fulfill that for us? Um, and I think some of you, uh, you've all kind of touched on bits and pieces, but do you guys want to add on here? Wendy, if you want to start us off. Sure. And, and I can ter- certainly talk from QA's perspective, right? We're, we're, our stake is making sure we're delivering compliance um, systems, right? We, we need to have that fundamental understanding of the regulations and, and how they can be applied. But we all know that each project is, is very unique and we're constantly being asked to make decisions that really challenge our, our way of thinking. And it's easy to point to a procedure, right? It's easy to point to a regulation. But, you know, as I mentioned before, they are intentionally vague and subjective. So it's really trying to understand how we can meet that 
that spirit of that requirement. And that's going back, I think that's been the theme, right? It's, it's that partnership when, with the SMEs on how to achieve that, right? I may not be the technical SME at the table. That's why you have all that different representation. It's why it's important to have risk-based methodologies that are built into the, the QMS and CSV programs. Um, and we talked about including QA in that conversation from the, from the very beginning. So we're not reworking, we're not causing delays. So it's, it's really making sure that everyone understands their role and what they need to do in order to kind of bring that technology to the business. Because that's ultimately what we're trying to do. We're trying to get to the technology to the business so we can fulfill whatever that objective may be. Yeah, and just to go with Wendy said, I love the quote, spirit of the spirit of the requirement, spirit of the regulation, because sometimes in our QMS, they were built to um, for like vendor management to really assess a CMO versus to assess an Amazon or a Microsoft. And so I think that's what's really hard if those processes have been built in our QMS for an entirely different business model. And we're trying to take those and apply those to the technology model. It, it's really tough for teams to make that leap because they're like, well, what would be different about qualifying Amazon than, you know, Kiwi or something like that. So I think that's when the second thing is hard to fulfill that until we really get an understanding what's the spirit of the requirement on this technology. Mm-hmm. No, I think that that's well said, Elise and Wendy. And and I, I guess I also feel like that there are times why why I think sometimes it's hard to fulfill our role is that I think we've also gotten really good at making it look that technology is easy. And technology actually, I think, is not as easy as everybody thinks it is. It's actually, I feel like, getting to be more and more complex. I think there's more webs, uh, more integration and, and, and such and tentacles out there of when you touch something, do we really understand that impact and what it may break? And I think, again, it's, it's also making sure that, um, you know, the business and those that we're working with kind of understand the, the, the complexities around technology. Yes, there's a lot more low coding platforms. Uh, yes, there's a lot more vendors and COT solutions out there. But then also when you're bringing it in and, and, and you're integrating with so many systems, that does add to level of complexity. So I just think, um, you know, that does make it a little bit harder. Or sometimes when you have to tell people, look, I know you want to go 100 miles and I really want to go there with you. But also we got to, you know, just do our due diligence, make sure we really understand the impact. We understand upstream and downstream. People forget that, I think, sometimes, which makes it hard. Yeah, it is. It is. And and also, you know, I, I feel like as we are we're trying to go in Rachel's, uh, you know, the way she said it, 100 miles per hour, sure, we want to go that far and, and go with that speed. Um, but we don't necessarily, so quality doesn't necessarily have the tools um, that they have handy, right? We're very good in implementing technology for business and making business operations smoother and more effective. And that's absolutely number one responsibility. But at the same time, to cope with that demand, we cope with that speed demand, I think we need to have uh, more tools implemented to make our lives easier. Because I still see and hear many companies are still on paper for change management, right? For incident management, prescript execution. And, you know, using technology there, uh, using a little bit of automation and having electronic systems for quality use, I think that's also going to contribute to this speed. 
you know, that's another roadblock I see that quality is not able to meet the speed expectation. Right. So it's on the low list of, of, of things to do, right? It doesn't necessarily yeah. make the cut a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, also what I'm hearing you guys all say is educating and we educating, it's educating others, but it's also educating ourselves. And um, I think, Rachel, you, you spoke a little bit to this earlier, right? It's like, there are forums, I think, Wendy, too, you mentioned it as well. There are places for us to have these conversations. And so I was wondering, do you guys have any concrete um, ways in which you educate yourself? Well, I got to be honest, just I, I really this first this is my first year where I really tr- tried and make a conscious effort to do these kinds of talks. And I've just learned so much even doing these kinds of talks. So I really encourage I, I hope this is encourages people that are listening to to, um, you know, take that leap. I'm not one that, you know, I'm getting more comfortable doing this. But the first time I did it, it was, it was definitely a little uh, stressful because um, it's not something I've done, but just reaching out to colleagues, learning what they're doing. We have to do this as an industry. We, you know, we're, we shouldn't be thinking that each company has to do this on our own. We're really going to move that needle. That's us working together, collaborating, going to test automation, um, you know, conferences or conferences like KenX, um, you know, doing panel discussions like this, podcast um, training, take the time to develop yourselves. I think we're always, you know, I know in my career, and I've done a lot, and a lot of it's been in CSV, we're always so busy implementing projects. I didn't take that time. And, and I, you know, I think we need to do that more. Yeah. Well, while we get the next video, I'm just going to add on the next question here, because I think they're very related. It's, it's how do we expand and, and how do we do that as a, an industry across the board, right? Wendy, did you want to? Yeah, I was going to add on to what uh, Rochelle was saying, and, and I mentioned this before, right? It's it's conversations like this, right? It's a panel like this. It's having, what are you doing? I'm having, it's really getting into the technical issue, right? Right now, I know we're talking very high level, but it's getting really tactical. It's having those benchmarking conversations. Um, I would say that with COVID, you're, you know, Rochelle, you're, you're spot on. Like, you don't have time. You have to make time to go to a seminar. You have to make time to make training. We never had time before, but with COVID, while working from home, it's amazing how much extra time we've had on our hands. Um, so it's it's keeping that momentum, right? It's not just how did we apply the, the the thought processes that COVID has forced us to do. It's also in our personal lives and how we how we educate ourselves, how we make that time to continue to be on top of what's what's trending, what is industry going, how can we apply it to life sciences, how can I drive the change at, at the QMS level? So it's it's really making the time for yourself to be able to to have those active conversations and question why, right? Uh, I know I believe it was uh, maybe it's freedom or, or Rochelle was talking about um, the new generation. They're very comfortable uh, with technology. They're also very comfortable with challenging the status quo. They want to know why. It's not just well, why does the FDA think like that? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Maybe I just, this is what my mentor told me I was supposed to do. And I've just kept the same tradition, but really getting to the, why are we implementing? Why are processes set up in a certain way? If we can answer that question, then then maybe it does make sense. But if we can't answer that question, maybe we're just keeping something because that's the status quo. That's the way it was traditionally done. And we really shouldn't just accept things at face value. We should really get to to the root of why we're doing the things we do in, in the workplace. What's, what's driving our controls? What's driving some of the requirements that are that's making some of our technology processes cumbersome? Yeah. And you know what I think is really good about our industry is we do share knowledge. 
I all the time. I mean, we'll say, hey, this is how I did it. I remember I'm going to really date myself. But way back when, when virtual infrastructures came out, I was like, how are we going to qualify this? And I'll never forget someone at a conference. We sat down for two hours and he mapped exactly how they did it. And it's still going today. I mean, the stuff. So we really share it. But I do think it is important for us um, to stay linked into people and not get, you know, like share in forms like this and not become complacent. And I think we don't do enough, just like you said, Wendy, is we don't at conferences or in things like this, ask all of ourselves, why are we doing it this way? You know, there, there's a lot of times that presentations come and they, they give case studies and things like that. But I never see a full presentation of like, why do we do screenshots? Why do we do this? And so we all could just add in and kind of do a little bit of self-reflection on ourselves of why have we done this for this long? And maybe the millennials will push those whys a lot more, which will be great. I think you see that too. We're going to wrap up this one kind of conversation, but I think we're going to get into the tactical stuff that just what you just mentioned, Elise. Um, just so at the end of the day, like who is really driving everything? Is it, is it business? Is it quality? Is it the vendors, IT patients? Like what do you guys go around the room? What, who do you think or combination of how do you, how do you think who's driving it? Who's driving this? Michelle? From my perspective, it's always to me the patients, and then the business is then helping drive what we need to get the patients, and then we have to drive the technology solutions based on what the business needs. So I don't. I think it's everybody that you just said there. Really, I I don't know that there's um. I, I, well, I like what you said though. I mean, it, the patient is the first thing, right? Correct. I mean, exactly. This is all about is. the patient. A lot of intent. When yeah. we're in the mix, we forget that we're actually doing stuff in service of a patient. Yes, 100%. And, and, and so, you know, I lose that all the time. And, and it's, I know it's hard, um, but yeah. Other yeah, and, and, I, and I have to be honest, I've been doing that more too, taking a step back saying, what really, you know, what's the impact of the patient, right? Anytime when you're like, I'm wondering and asking, you know, do I really need to do something? That's a question to ask yourself too. How is this impacting the patient? You know, if I if, if we don't do this, what is the ultimate impact? Right? It, you know, those kinds of kind of almost like the negative impacting rather than you know the negative versus the positive. Yeah, and I think, okay. yeah, I think the old yeah. term, the patient is waiting. You know, we used to always say that a long time ago. And now you really feel it in the air. I mean, I'm sure by friends and family, you guys get asked all the time, when is this therapy coming out, do you think? When do you think the vaccine is coming out? When do you think this is happening? So that whole, the patient is waiting, you know, we used to say it years ago, it is right in front of us right now because the patient is definitely waiting. And and, and now we, I think it's a whole different um, timeline. All right. So let's get into some tactical strategies. Um, what are some of the challenges you see with your paperless validation adoption within your organization? Wendy, do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I think it's safe to say that everyone has a, a desire to go paperless. Um, the, the challenge in making that transition is really being comfortable that it's not a one-to-one. And I think we've talked, we've alluded a little bit to this and even trying to go from a paper process to a, a technology, a, a technical solution, right? So if you think about 
paperless CSV. I have my paper URS. I can flip through it. It's tangible. I can see the approvals. So moving to that paperless solution, that look and feel may be gone. And I think there's a, people tend to get uncomfortable with that. What that is, it's coming back to that. What is the what is the requirement? How can we meet it? What is that the spirit of it? Um, so if we can get away from trying to make that exact copy, I think people will be more open to it. I think it's really just taking the time to understand how we're satisfying the requirement in that paperless solution, right? If, if you think about um, just basic good documentation practices, I look at a strike through, I could see it. I could see it was maybe a late entry. There's a note there. But when you're talking about a, a technical solution and the word dog was there before and it's gone, it says cat. Now I have to, I, I don't see why someone made that change. Now I need to go into that audit trail. So it's kind of showing that link that traceability on how we're still satisfying and meeting the requirements in the paperless solution. I just don't think people are, not everyone is able to make that leap, that transition without kind of going um, point to point. At least what I've seen. Yeah. And I think, I also, I think you're spot on. I think it's the comfort with the tools and when they used to review on paper, it's now data and they kind of have to drive in. And I'm thinking it's a change management thing with people too. Like, can we do a PDF report out of our paperless solutions to get them through, you know, like kind of an interim solution. So you're slowly taking, you know, them walking them through going completely paperless. But, but I also think sometimes um, that people might not be in the tool constantly. And when they come up for a new project, there's, there's almost need to be a refresher, right? Because I'm really noticing like the project will end and then the, whether it's a testing team, BAs, they might not be in there all the time. And I'm really noticing the struggle there. They're trained on the tool, but there's ability because if they're not in there every day, you need to kind of refresh them and walk them through. But it's all about the change management of the, the process and the people when it comes to these tools, I'm really noticing. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I've seen uh, people just are uncomfortable because, you know, they're used to, like you said, pulling a paper or something tangible. And even during inspections, I've heard that concern over and over. During inspection, I was able to just pull the script and give it. Now we are paperless. And you really have to, while you're implementing these tools, you really have to take time thinking this through. How are you going to pull it? Have you taken, um, you know, is that report, if it's a report that you're printing out, is it going to give you everything that's needed, right? Is it justifiable, defendable during audits? And um, have you made that part of your validation process? Has that report been part of your validation, right? So if you take time to think this through and build your validation and, and implementation as such, I think it's, it's going to become a little bit more easier in that option. Freedom, you're absolutely right. You know, I didn't even think about the, the regulation aspect of it, but it's true. It's how do you present it in an inspection? People are very uncomfortable of showing a live system like because the regulators can start going, well, could you click in here, depending on how you're setting that up. So that's definitely mm-hmm. a consideration where I've seen people use paperless CSV, but then in an inspection, we'll print it out because of the concern of being to be able to set it up and then people start to question like oh well did you test this functionality and i don't think that individuals are prepared for that conversation they're not prepared for the conversation but i will say the fdars are getting more sophisticated with asking for that right they want to see the electronic solution um 
they're they they're they're getting trained in it. They understand them. They it's it's very unlikely to get away from that conversation anymore and, and play. Oh, we're just going to show you the paper anymore. They they know that they need to um, to investigate. Rochelle, I was wondering if you can add on to the the second question here around. You know, does this lead to also some different testing strategies going this paperless route? Yeah, and I think um, I think we kind of touched upon that before. I think this goes, you know, the, the paperless is you don't have to always have IQ, OQ, and, and UAT, right? We should be looking at first of all leveraging vendor testing where it makes sense, and you know, and and some and sometimes that's through like your vendor audit and such, and then you can hopefully write off a lot of your system testing, and then then really based on um, assessing the risk. You really figure out, well, there's exploratory testing, which testing is scripted versus not scripted. Is there ways of um, you can just document in a summary report the scenarios that the business looked at and they're just signing off that I did do testing or, you know, and if you don't have screenshots or, or scripts, but that just says, yeah, I checked the system and these scenarios, you know, uh, were met. And, you know, I'm signing off. So I think that the paperless CSV adoption, um, CSA, right? So we talked about that before as well. I think those are opening the door to other ways of, of how you can do testing. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, what we're, we're all used to, um, you know, from our past. And again, real exciting. Yeah. So Wendy, can you speak a little bit to, because uh, I know, uh, particularly at Biogen as well, there's, there's not, not that not every solution meets the business need, right? So a paperless solution may come in different forms. So like for your engineering folk, have a different paperless solution versus non-engineering applications. Do you have some thoughts around that? Uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It, it really comes down to it's once one type of solution. It's not one size fits all uh, um, either. Right? There's a solution. There's another one that's um, I believe it's called Neat, and and that tends to be a little more user friendly from an interface perspective, especially if you have manufacturing um, associates kind of operating it versus a solution like ALM or, or Vera where it's kind of more removed from the business. And so you have that more technical field and makes it easier for the SMEs to be leveraging it. Um, so when you're talking about different solutions, it, it also makes it very difficult to kind of truly adopt or, or give your time and energy into really developing that change management piece, getting people more comfortable because you're still living in both worlds. And it also really makes it difficult to try to harmonize your processes if your different areas within your business are, are working in different solutions. Yeah, great. All right, so let's uh, another one. Want to talk about you know this concept of data integrity um, and whether or not you guys have incorporated it into your CSV process or um, kind of giving your perspectives on on how they relate to one another. When uh, whoever wants to start is yeah, I, I can start this. Um, yeah, I think worse. It depends company to company. I've seen it run separately sometimes and then coming in at the end of the CSV process, I've seen it totally integrated. What, I, what I'm noticing, and we've all talked about it before, the whole data integrity um, guidance, MHRA and all of them, really we've been doing it. I mean, it's just about mapping it and really defining our data and data flows 
But what I think is good about this, it's really had us all think about how do we define data? How do we define transactional data? How do we define master data? I was in a meeting where people said, what's your raw data? And everyone looked around the room like, what? You know, so, so I think it's really pushing us as a business really to understand our data in our systems and also our audit trails. Audit trails are not all created equally in CSV. We test them, right? We make sure the system's doing it. But what are they? Why are we looking at this audit trail? Is it even important? But I do think you can take the data integrity, all the guidelines, and you can map them very nicely in a crosswalk right to the part 11, the annex 11s of the world, all of it. It's not anything that we haven't been doing. I think it's just making us look at our data closer and making sure we're stewards of the data and nothing's going to happen to that data. That's what it's really just trying to flush out. And I always call us stewards of the data because the systems are the stewards and the IT, CSV, you know, we're testing it. But I, I really see um, a lot of attention given to this area, which is good, but I also think we need to make sure it fits nicely with the CSV process. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And like you said, Elise, you know, it's it's really pushing um, business to really take a step back, define their processes, do that data mapping, right? So that they identify what is critical data points for their processes. and audit shells are there. They have always been part of our validation process before. But now this kind of brings back emphasis on which audit trail is critical for business based on your intended use. And, you know, kind of marrying that together with what you focus on in CSP, that's going to be critical going forward. Wendy, Rochelle? No, um, no, absolutely. At least Peter, you're, you're spot on with that, right? It's It's been there. Part 11's been there. This is not new. So it's always interesting when people ask, like, what are you doing for data integrity? I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? It's already built into, it's already been built right. into our systems. This is not new. It's just kind of been more of a focus on it. And it really is putting the spotlight on the business to understand their data and being able to articulate it when you're raw. What is raw data? You're right. People are looking around the room. You also ask, what's the system of record, right? Because we're living in, in very complex systems. We're heavily integrated. We have some high systems where we start in paper, we go to the technology, then we come back to paper. So it's really understanding that life cycle of data. And that's what data integrity is really doing. It's kind of forcing that conversation. Do you know your data, all the potential transformations that it may be going through? And what does it mean at the end of the day? What does that that result look like? So whereas the business, I think historically is like, we need a solution to X, Y, Z. Now the the pushback is like, that's great. Um, we can deliver that, but what does it mean for with respect to your data? And that's just not a conversation or, or something they've been able to, they've never been asked that before. So it's, it's a different focus for sure. I think, I think you guys all hit the nail on the head and said it perfectly because one of my big, big things that I was always worried about is people, some people are saying data integrity and I, I don't want it to become a CSV remediation program. That's not I, what the focus is. The focus is on what you said. I think that what happened was people thought, well, I have a validated system. So that means I've met data integrity. And I think this is just highlighting where there may be some gaps and more the business understanding the data, their processes, the data mapping. So you guys said it perfectly. Great. All right. So another big question I get asked a lot about is, um, <laughs> so this, why is there this perception of that more testing evidence is better? Um, and I thought this would be a great place to 
ask that question of all of you. Freedoms, you want to start this one? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's just easier, right? Sometimes it's easier to just do more, to avoid thinking and assessing risk. Um, and, and what we end up doing by doing more is actually introducing new risks because you're not critically thinking what I need to focus on. What is more critical for me? And, you know, uh, there is a saying, right? If everything is critical, nothing ends up being critical. Nobody is looking at the things um, the way they should be looking at for something that's, that's possibly introducing risk. Um, so I, I think that that's what it is. You know, traditionally it has been, um, you know, there is a saying also in our world that if it's not documented, it did not happen. So produce documents, that's going to get us out of inspection. That has been the mindset. And I think it's, it's just culture change now. Um, we have to focus on that culture change. We have to really think of what is going to add value and focus on that. No, I, I completely agree, Preetam. And I think also a shift, I, I do believe there's also a shift more about this focusing on the system works. And if it's not working, documenting your defects really well or having your processes for, you know, mm -hmm. after the fact. Okay, if something didn't work, doing an investigation and then, you know, your CAPA and your preventative action. Uh, that yeah. makes you have to acknowledge to do defects. Right. Well, exactly. Okay. And I think the focus needs to be more on that. What's not working rather than showing that everything is working. Right. Exactly. Right? Um, I think exactly. usually, you know, when people start really digging in is when they see something isn't working. And that's usually in the floor when they're, you know, sometimes even walking around and saying, can you show me something? And then, you know, there's questions and stuff like that. So, I, again, I'm not saying that there isn't, you know, depending on risk, that there are some places where you might need a little more evidence. But this goes back to where do we need it? Right. And and that test evidence, right? The, you generate test evidence and then you're busy doing initial and date and, and cross-referencing mm -hmm. and page numbering. It just shifts your focus to to mere documentation rather than really looking objectively what is my system needs, right? you know, what is that function that I'm testing. I would much rather have testers think of that and really put the system through day in the life type of scenarios that cover more scenarios than capturing screenshots just because I needed evidence. Right. This is an area I think as an industry, we should have a whole workshop on screenshots. I think we were doing it when our technology was not mature, when our testers maybe were new at it and it's just carried over because I could show you systems that we validated with hundreds of screenshots and it went into production and we got hundreds of incidents. So it's yeah. not increasing the, the you know, the robustness, just like you said, of our testing. And this is an area, I think, what does that tester, when they put pass, what does that mean, right? If the expected result is there, why are we doing these screenshots and why are we doing it in, inconsistently? I've been at companies where we said this is the five places only that you would do a screenshot. But I think we need to get better at that because I, I do think it's, burning our resources with no value. There's also, I think we're in a position also to be able to review things more independently or in the, in the source systems without having to do screen captures, mm -hmm. you know, as a, a reviewer or even as QA, if I can go into that reference system and look up the, look up the output myself, is there really a need to have that screen capture? Assuming that that output is not going to change in time, right? So it's just a different way of being able to demonstrate a successful run or successful script without necessarily having that 
that screen capture. And it is easier, freedom to your point. It is easier to just not think about it. I will do it for every step. The QA is not going to reject this. They'll pass the script and we'll move on. But we're really not demonstrating the fulfillment of the requirement. We're just saying like, I don't know what's important. And therefore I'm just going to just capture everything. Yeah, I think we've seen some unintended consequences uh, from an industry perspective of doing this capture everything, right? We've seen one, the amount of data that's being captured and testing evidence is huge. And frankly, you know, to be able to maintain that forever is not really practical, right? You get the testers that are doing mindlessly screenshotting and not really thinking about what they're doing to Freedom's point, right? But then I also think the part of our earlier conversation around the partnership and the trust factor, right? So I think I've, you know, working with different companies, I've heard like, again, this notion of we don't want a defect because QA is going to find out about it, right? Or, you know, or um, QA doesn't trust us. So we have to do this stuff, right? And I think those are some of the unintended consequences of this old way of thinking about we got to capture everything just because, you know, that that is what we did on paper. So therefore we have to do it in an electronic system. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on, I think we had a couple of more of these kind of very specific um, tactical sorts of things. Um, you know, test automation is near and dear to my heart. I think it's something that we all need to really um, adopt more as an, as an industry. I was wondering if you guys can speak about what are some of the stopping points of why organizations are not adopting test automation in regulated space. Priyam, you want to start with that? Sure. Yeah, I think this goes back to um, being uncomfortable with technology sometimes, right? Not understanding uh, how this story is going to work. So that automatically causes a little bit of anxiety. And the other portion, like I mentioned before, I've heard this concern a lot that uh, when the inspection is going on, I should be able to give them what exactly they're asking for, nothing less, nothing more, right? And and how do I plan on that? So there's there's overall nervousness around that as well. And I think that's definitely what's many times causing roadblocks for adoption for test automation. And, and if you think about uh, all these tools, right? Uh, we have had Roadrunner forever. And, and any any automated test, because when you look at the results, you can't really see clearly what was tested, right? It, it has gone through the script and it has given you um, the end result without you being part of the whole process and, and able to follow through. So getting to know technology, making sure this is really doing what I think it's doing, right? Getting comfortable with that, that that will help a lot in, um, you know, in, in smoothing out these issues that we're seeing. Wendy? It's it's also going back to the kind of that one-to-one. It's like, it, it doesn't look like my paper test scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah. How, what how, what am I showing in an inspection when I look at this automated script, right? There's also how do I manage it? What does a change control process look on this automated script when I have to make changes to it, right? Because it's it's being done off a, a paper or manual script. So what does that look like? Also, what does a failure look like? What am I supposed to do with that? If it fails against production, is that a deviation? Because it 
it's in production or maybe there was a latency issue. So there's a lot of questions still to be answered. And if you don't have that built in your program, when you're trying to adopt it or you're trying to leverage it, it's you're going to have more questions than answers. So it's really kind of putting some time into it, really understanding how it works, how what are we going to do when you're finding a defect? What does this mean? And and really and really understanding it before you just look to adopt it. There's a lot of benefit for it. There is for, with regression scripts, uh, there's for the health checks that you could do. So there's a lot of benefit in leveraging the test automation, these automated scripts, but it's just not quickly just going ahead and putting it into production. It's really understanding how you want to use it. And, and maybe the baby steps are doing smoke testing, are doing things that are, are kind of health checks, like after you've done your paper scripts. But there, there's a lot of variables. And I think that for the most part, if you don't have an organization or function that are very familiar with it or how they can kind of, again, bring it QA or other stakeholders along that journey and, and kind of explain that context, you're, you're going to have some you're going to have some pushback on it. Yeah, and just to add in on that, I, I totally agree. It's that comfort and stuff. But it's another area where we should ask why, because in our manufacturing, I, a prior role I had in manufacturing, um, we're automating everything and really close to the product, right, in our manufacturing suites. And we should ask ourselves, and that's all software too. So that's another question to ask. Why are, why are we so slow to adopt test automation when we're willing to do it over in our manufacturing suites? But also I've noticed an ROI you know, how do we prove? Because a lot of times when you're trying to make a case for test automation, immediately certain executives think like you should cut the people, you'll cut a bunch of people. But we all know tools like this cost you more at the beginning just to get the skill set built up in-house and get them going. And you start to really see the benefit ramps up quick. And I think we're, we should do a better job in um, kind of showing that sometimes that whole return on investment, how, yeah, it's going to cost, but here's what you're just going to shoot to the ceiling on the regression testing, like you said, Wendy, and everything else. Michelle? I, I really think they all hit on the on the key points. I think it, it's not and, and test automation doesn't mean that you're taking away the manual testing. It's not an all or nothing. Right. You, you apply test automation where it makes sense and for those tools where it, it, it makes sense and, and you do manual testing where it makes sense. So I think part of what Wendy was saying with the baby adoption, I think people worry that test automation also that it's going to what am I going to do now? If I don't, if, if there's test automation, and again, this goes back to that, this maybe then is just a different role, right? And and if we engage and embrace this new technology, learn it, um, this to me is is really growth actually uh, for this profession. So, uh, and uh, you know, it, it's it's natural to think that way, um, but I think again, it's it's really a growth opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's another area that I think we've seen this come up as well. Um, is in the, some of the challenges and pushbacks we get around deploying to cloud. Um, now, I know some of you have internal clouds, which are one one thing, but I'm talking more the external, the, the SaaS providers, those sorts of things. What are some of the challenges you see there, um, Elise? Yeah, you know, and I think we've all, um, I think it's a, a 
change management thing too. I think what where we're missing maybe the mark sometimes is having people understand what a SaaS solution, what an infrastructure as a service solution is, what a platform as a service. We jump into projects and I think sometimes there's hesitancy, there's there's holdback because I think again the comfort level of people and the understanding isn't there. And also I think even from our IT groups, I mean it's a completely different model. Um, just like Rochelle was saying earlier, just the interconnections all throughout our ecosystem are so sophisticated now. And also, you know, these clouds are changing, right? How do you keep up with a, a Snowflake vendor for or any of the vendors that do updates every month? Sometimes um, Power BI is updating every week. I mean, I think it's it's really understanding that everyone has on the team. And again, it all comes back to assessing risk and really um, knowing where where we can tolerate the change and relying on the cloud vendor to take it and where we have to maintain it within. But it's an education level for every project team. Absolutely. And like you said, Elise, you know, things are changing every day, but our vendors have come a long way too. You know, so we have to start looking at their programs. How are they managing changes? Um, And can we rely on their change management? You know, if you get comfortable with the way they're managing changes on their side, they can change every day. But if they're testing thoroughly and you have confidence that the change is not going to break anything, then I think the comfort level increases. You know, it's much more easy to adopt this um, uh, whole vendor-managed cloud um, if you really look at how they manage changes on their end. Michelle or Wendy, did you want to add any more? I, I, not a lot. I, I feel like we actually have come a long way, I think. Um, I do. It, it can continue to evolve, but I know at least, um, you know, at our company, I think, you know, it took a little bit of um, meeting with infrastructure, right? So, right, infrastructure talks a different language and it takes some time. Again, this goes back to what we were talking about before and and collaborating and learning from each other, trusting each other, asking them questions so they can understand what we're, what we're looking for and they can explain the technology to us. And I think, I know I've gotten a lot more comfortable with this, um, um, you know, whether it's in-house or with our vendors. So I think there's a lot of advantages to it. Um, so, and hopefully, hopefully the industry will just continue to evolve and accept. Yeah. I also think there's a little bit of maybe a mystery behind the cloud where there's, <laughs> you need to do something different to qualify or validate it. It's no different than on-prem, right? The, <laughs> the requirements are the same, but I think there is that mystery that we need to do something above and beyond. Um, we also need to recognize that not, you're not, it's not a, we can't all go to the cloud. There's going to be some systems that are not going to be able to, we know that the manufacturing systems right. are probably not going to be on the cloud. So it's going to be for companies to see what makes sense. Does it make sense to have a, both models, it makes make sense to be on-prem. So there, there's a lot of that. And then there's the, from a vendor and SaaS perspective, there's a whole there's a whole quality agreement, right? On the, the data integrity side of the, the house. You know, who's responsible for the data? The company is, not the vendor. You are, as the company, is responsible. And so really putting that roles and responsibilities as to, uh, around that. Um, so there's, there's still some variables that need to be taken into consideration, but there's no reason that we can't leverage the, the capability of the cloud. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So it's interesting. One of the things I heard in what you're saying um, also leads me into our next question around, you know, if I talk to my software developers, right, my true software developers, SQA, software quality assurance has always been part of their standard process, right? But we also talk about this other thing, the CSV, right? This other thing layered on top of that. And so one of the questions we often have internally is, why are they different or why do we talk about them different rather than why are we leveraging this, the, the robustness of that software development lifecycle that already exists in most organizations? And, and can we meet both requirements in one process rather than having them be thought of as different? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's funny because when I read this question, I'm like, are you able to apply it to meet both requirements? And I feel I feel like, as you said, they really should be all in one. You know, if you're following a robust SDLC, you know, quality, software quality assurance should be built into that process. If you're following that SDLC, your result is software quality assurance. So um, I think people forget that CSV is not an activity. It's actually a process. Again, it's made up of stakeholders. It's made up of different um, activities within that process. It, it, I think people think that CSV is something additional. It really shouldn't be. If you have a good SDLC and methodology, like you're saying, Dory, um, you should be able to definitely meet both requirements. Um, so... Thanks all. I, I, as we start to wrap up our time together, I wanted to acknowledge and thank you all um, for sharing your time, your thoughts with me. You're incredibly talented and I really, really, truly appreciate it. Um, one of the things I think, Rochelle, you started with is also over the last several years, I've been doing a lot of mentoring um, in for women in IT and in life sciences within organizations that I work with personally. And it's really, um, I think, important. Um, and one of the big questions that often is asked of me is, you know, so what do I think about typically being the only woman in the room is often the case. And then so, and to hop off on that is what has changed over the years. Um, so I was wondering if we can go around, if you guys can kind of answer what changes have you seen regarding we, women in leadership roles in the workplace today? Wendy, do you want to start? Yeah. Sure. So when, when it comes to more technical based roles, I, women are still very much underrepresented, but that is just like a reflection of women, fewer women focusing on, on STEM degrees, right? It's it's important that companies have programs to reach out to girls in high school and college to expose them to those available roles. I, I know I never heard of validation, um, certainly never heard of CSV. And you know, when you think about quality assurance, it was probably more in the context of quality control, right? QC checks, less in, in the context of a manufacturing process. Um, and if you look at even IT organizations, whether they're in life sciences or not, you'll still see very few women and even fewer women in leadership positions, right? Uh, we're in a much better place but today, but not where we need to be. There's definitely a more concerted effort or focus on having those conversations. We just need to make sure that those conversations are, are, are resulting in action, right? Um, so, you know, in, in my role today, I, I am in a position to, to influence it and drive change. And, and I try to take advantage of those opportunities to really make a difference. It could be as simple as participating in, in a career fair, being a mentor, you know, having coffee with that soon to be graduate. So that way you can talk about your career progression. It's really important to be a strong advocate. You know, each one of um, of us in this panel, we've we've been there. We've we put down a, a brick or two to really continue to to pave that way. And the more we work together and share our experiences, we're making it easier for other women to reach that next milestone. Great, thanks, Elise. 
Yeah, I think what Wendy said, I, I, I think it's great we're talking about it more and the next phase will be action. What I also see, which I'm really encouraged about, is women in our industry are reaching to out to us more than ever before. I mean, we're reaching down and saying, hey, do you want to have coffee? Do you want to do this? But they're also reaching up to us and saying, hey, I'd like to talk about this. What what did you do in this kid scenario? And I'm thinking about this for my path. And I really, I really like what I see about the all the conversations, but I'm not seeing the data yet. And I'm hoping to see the data support all the conversations that women are are getting those key positions and they are getting up put on those high profile projects more and more going forward. Freedom? I agree. I, I completely can relate to what you said, Wendy. You know, the STEM program and, and reaching out to girls, that's so important. Um, it's I don't even have to go that far back. You know, when I was doing my engineering, I had one girl in my class. Uh, and I didn't know why uh, I was always interested. I always wanted to have, uh, you know, engineering background. I, I, that world fascinated me at the time. Um, and it was discouraging to see there are, no, there are not that many girls that are interested in engineering. But uh, at the same time, as the time has progressed, I, I see more and more women in our field. And that's very, very encouraging. I've had really good managers who happen to be women and they have encouraged um, and mentored us to develop. And I, I feel that it's, it's our responsibility to do, to do the same for this new generation that, that is coming up. I completely agree. Michelle? Yeah, I really love this question because it is something I'm passionate about. And you know, good news, I think similar that other, uh, you know, Wendy, Elise and Preetam said is that I am noticing that I'm not that sole token female in the room at meetings as much as I used to be. And uh, and sometimes I actually I have to admit that sometimes there's more women than men. And, you know, being in IT for 20 plus years, that's to me a big deal. And I'm also seeing that um, I've seen in the past six to seven years, there are more women in the technology industry, um, more women being promoted to management. Uh, positions, in, including directors, I think the hurdle is more at that executive management level, the VP and above. But I'm encouraged because the shift I see is that more people are openly discussing this, um, and it's resulting in actions. Right? There's, there, you know, thinking of ways to do team building that appeals to everyone. You know, it can't always be golf, right? I mean, all of us don't you know, <laughs> like not all play golf. Focusing on closing the pay gaps and ensure everyone is being paid fairly for the work performed. You're really actually, you know, hearing about that. And then, of course, you know, formation of diversity, inclusion equality functions. You know, many companies now you're seeing uh, a chief officer for this. So I think the momentum is here. Uh, 2020 is really a start of that new age. And uh, for those on, on the phone, like research those, get involved with those groups that, that you know, in your mm -hmm. companies, um, whether it's inside or external, you know, just don't just sit and wait for the change, just be part of it. Awesome. So was there any anything stands out that you maybe did differently earlier in your careers versus what you do now in in your careers where you now have titles and roles where you you guys are influencers within your organizations? Is there anything that you've navigated and changed over the years? I can start. Oh, okay, go ahead, Wendy. No, go ahead. You could start. 
No, uh, I'm certainly probably, I'm certainly more vocal <laughs> in my career. Um, you know, one of my earlier roles, I, I worked in an engineering firm and in my first assignment, I was the only female in a construction trailer. Not that that should be a shock, right? But <laughs> because that's not historically where you would see a female. And, and I never quite felt comfortable. It was, I had to felt like I needed to prove myself more than my male counterparts. And not because anyone was saying that, right? That was that that was in my own head and and I really let that environment dictate the type of person that I was and in isolation it's really difficult to to see what's right and what's not right right we can we can convince ourselves of pretty much anything um, and it's really important to have a strong network of women to connect with to kind of help you see a, that different perspective because when you're in it you're really in it um, so I, I would say that I've I've definitely learned that you need to step away, have a conversation and, and see others' perspectives of, of your situation just because they, they don't have your story and they're able to kind of look at it with it, a non-biased mind. So definitely looking at having that strong network and just realizing that you are who you are as an individual and your environment really shouldn't try. You shouldn't change because of your environment. Elise? Yeah, I think the big thing is, you know, as it's changed for me, as even when Leaning In, the book came out, I really became aware in business meetings when we were on site, how people are even sitting at the table. So your awareness of just that. And, and also when you are in a position where you can make room, if someone is not getting the floor time and is not getting the space, another female, you, you know, I've noticed myself in my career now, I'm making space. I'm actually saying, excuse me, do you have some, you know, just to help make that space? Because I think the awareness is uh, for me anyway, early on, we all knew it, but it really wasn't talked about. And now the awareness is there and we can talk about it and we can do the action when we're empowered to in certain rooms. So it's changed. It's changed for the better, but we still have a long way to go. <laughs> yeah, I, I think for me, um, I feel like the change has been I'm, I'm much more comfortable in asking questions. And saying, yeah, I don't know this. I, I want to learn about it, right? I, I got comfortable doing that uh, over the years because initially I used to think, uh, you know, somebody said this earlier too, that I should know this. I'm in this job. I should know this. And you're not going to know everything. So, you know, quit pretending uh, that you know. Ask questions. And that actually leads to something better. Um, you learn, first of all, and you're able to get your ideas across as well. So I have gotten comfortable. And like Alice, you said, I, I tend to do the same. I, I feel like I have been more aware of the fact that, um, you know, this person needs a little bit help in advocating them. And I tend to, I tend to extend myself for, for, for that. And I, I tend to um, make sure that these women that are sitting at the table with me are more comfortable. Um, so that's that's the change I have seen personally myself. Really? Nice. Michelle? Um, I, you know, from earlier on to now, I, I feel that I've really um, tried to embrace that growth mindset, always looking to broaden my experience and be that continuous learner. Uh, take time to build the strong, trusting relationships. I think that's really key. And I think you kind of realize that as you as you start, you know, as you, you're in your career longer and longer and and 
find those leaders that you trust and talk to them and ask for help. Don't be afraid. You don't have to feel that you're in it alone. I really think that's important. And also throughout my career, I've really been fortunate enough. I've never been in formal mentor programs, but I've, you know, it's funny. I just connected with some people and have had informal mentors, both men and women. And, and these are people I connected with instantly. And there's really just, it's so special. It's that circle of trust. You know, it's a no judgment zone. It's your safe zone. And I think, um, you know, as uh, now what I'm trying to do is when I see that with folks, I, I'm now doing that with people. So I think that's really important um, in early on your career. And then as you grow, you know, ha- you know, look for that and then pay, you know, pay it forward as well. So it really just, um, mm-hmm. you know, you learn from those relationships. It gives you the confidence in what you do. And I know it's helped me and who I am today. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're all saying is um, modeling behavior that we want to see in the world, right? Like if we are sitting at the table and we see stuff, we say stuff, we apps, you know, we ask in, we invite in, we enroll in that whole sort of thing. Um, and us modeling that helps the next generation and, and so forth. That's wonderful. All right. So we're wrapping up here with our last question. I kind of wanted to leave everyone with, you know, kind of, what was maybe some of the best advice ever given to yourself or from you know someone or what do you want to leave the next generation with? Like what, what's some big parting thoughts you guys have here? <clears throat> Michelle or Freedom, do you want to start us off? Sure. Okay, I can start. Uh, the, the best advice I have been given, um, you know, you really have to be your own advocate. You have to have vision. Stop doubting yourself, have that vision and make things happen for you. You know, and I, I think uh, that along with working really hard, don't be shy to put in extra effort to get where you want to get. I think that that definitely has helped me a lot. Um, you know, uh, also I want to add, you know, as we're getting there, especially those young women out there that are, that are aspiring to be leaders, don't forget that naturally we have been given this gift of having empathy, right? Um, we're naturally more empathetic towards others. And I, I really hope that we don't forget that side of us as well. We don't want to copy somebody. We don't want to be somebody else. We really need to embrace and, and spread that kindness. That helps building strong relationships, like Prashu was saying. It also helps your team to be together and and have that team spirit. So I think women leaders are actually a lot more effective having that team spirit in their team. So don't forget that. Nice. Rochelle? That, that, that's great, Preetam. Um, the best advice I've been given and I would give to new generation is, is um, just be you. Trust your instincts. Never do anything you're not comfortable with or goes against your values and principles. That's the best advice um, I've been given. And, and it's, you know, I, I hold true to that. And then advice that I would give to the new generation is, you know, take that time as we discussed, I think, throughout this whole um, great panel is take time for your development, build that network and circle of trust and never forget the golden rule. Um, it's something I live by. Treat others the way you want to be treated and have fun in what you do. Awesome. Wendy? 
not everyone thinks the same way. <laughs> there, there's so much that goes into how we approach things, right? And the goal is not to get everyone to think like you do. We really need diversity in thought, but we need to help each other really understand our perspectives. So there's an appreciation for our stance um, and people are not going to always agree with you, you know, and, and that's okay. It's mm-hmm. still important to take the time and have that conversation to give that context and background. Uh, in terms of advice, I, I would say try new things. It's okay not to have a career planned out or not know what you want to do. Um, in time, you'll know what you really like and what you really don't like, so, but there's no rush to get there. Um, there'll be natural pivot points in, in your, your career. Um, also, never underestimate the, the potential in, ladder, in a lateral move. Everyone's really focusing on climbing up the ladder, but there is a lot of value in just sometimes going to a completely different area that you may not have background in. And if you have an opportunity, don't immediately discount it. Um, there's there's so much to be learned from those positions, like every new role, whether it be up or down or sideways, right? There's there's something that you can tease out of it that's going to give you a new skill. It's going to build upon an existing one. Or, you know what, maybe it's just establishing that network. You may not see the value in it in that time, but in time, um, you'll you'll see where those where those moves have kind of made you the person who you are. Um, so it's very important to just make sure that you keep an open mind. Awesome. All right, Elise, close us out. I will. I think this is really good to hear from everyone. Um, I think many years ago, I got the best advice of not getting comfortable and complacent because then you're not growing. But and also the advice is to continue to be you and be bold and be brave. And to when you're in a leadership position, encourage people to do that and give them the right air coverage because those people are going to come up with some of the best ideas and move it forward. So I'm always trying to learn like 20 years ago, I had the best boss telling me that is, and if you are too comfortable and complacent, you're not in the right environment. You need to really stretch yourself and people under you too. You need to make sure they're stretching themselves. And I think it's critical for where we are in our industry that we're all, you know, bringing that to the table. It's awesome. I couldn't agree more. Um, we had a couple questions that came through. We talked about SDLC. I think that's just kind of a straight up definition one. Um, system um, development lifecycle or software development lifecycle kind of go hand in hand. Um, depending on who you're talking to, it's it's generally the same sort of concept. Um, and that's kind of how we were talking about things in general during our conversations. Um, Wendy, do you want to take uh, the next question around electronic technology? Um, does paper te- paperless technology is really going to be the the wave of the future? <laughs> uh, well, if we take how we've had to work with COVID, if you didn't have some paperless technologies, you were probably scrambling to get those in place in order to support a remote more workforce. So I don't think we're going to be looking to revert back if we ever do go back into the offices or whatever the hybrid model is going to be when when COVID kind of subsides a little. Um, But you really do need to look at the paperless solutions. It enables you to reach a lot more people. So if you even think about hiring talent, and we were talking about how difficult it is to find people within the STEM um, STEM degrees, if you now have a remote workforce, you're able to leverage individuals across the United States and in other countries where you don't have to have 
them be in the offices. So how do you do that? You have to have paperless technologies in order to be to enable that. Otherwise, you're going to be spending a lot of money on printing services and scanning, and it's not the, the, the agile way of working. So no, we're not going to be shifting back to paperless. You may start there if you're a startup, depending on where you are in your journey. Um, if anything, it's going to be how more creative we can get with our paperless technologies and how can we look at the regulations and the requirements in, to, in order to enable that. Great. Thanks. Rochelle, um, in terms of data integrity, um, there was questions around, you know, there's a lot of 43s and non-compliance issues around data integrity and how does that interplay with the CSV process and how, how do you, how do you kind of justify increasing that data integrity um, claims? I think the focus of data integrity, that's a great question, by the way. And thank you, everybody, for joining. I see a lot of, you know, I think we got a good amount of numbers and, and really appreciate it. I think the focus of data integrity um, now is really not on the CSV element. I think part 11 really covered those elements. And where I see it is more on the business process side, where I think um, they're seeing that People felt that because they validated the systems, they felt that that's all they needed to do. And we didn't have those business processes surrounding when should they review their audit trail. Um, if you're making updates to data, um, ensuring that somebody's checking those updates and, and those kinds of quality checks that should be built into your different processes. Those are just examples. Also monitoring your backups, mon you know, monitoring of, of certain elements within your business process as well. So. I'm not sure that data integrity, the focus is now is as much on the CSV elements. Now, of course, there could be some companies that are better than others on, on CSV. So I think it depends on your company. I know in the companies that I've worked for, we, we that's not where the problem's been. It's been more on those other elements, some of the local systems as well, some of our instrument systems um, and those kinds of areas. So to me, that's where that focus has been. Yeah, I, I want to tie into what um, Pritam was trying to convey with the, the risk-based approach. I and mean, if you talk about data integrity and that audit trail functionality, if you don't really understand your data, how are you assessing risk against that function that is actually storing your data or transforming it or processing as a workflow? So it's all tied hand in hand, really. It's not so much about CSV. It's how did you incorporate the data integrity principles into your CSV process, right? Did you test it? Did you design it? To, with the intended use of mine of that data. That's that's a great way, Wendy, of saying that. And that goes back to what we were saying throughout the parts about our business process mapping, our data mapping elements, and knowing how that all fits in. So that's that's actually that's a great closing remark. Priyam, you want to get in there? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add. I hope my voice is uh, voice quality is better now. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So so you know the the way when part eleven came. Uh, and, and now data integrity is becoming hot topic. People are saying, oh, that's new part 11. I, I really want to think of, you know, we had good documentation practices. Because we started using electronic systems, we had to comply with part 11, which was really extension of those good documentation practices. And now it's further extension that, you know, you have to drive that accountability. So if you think about Alcoa principles, Right, it talks, it touches all those elements, your security, your technology, your process, and your people. And um, so, so you know, like Rochelle said, CSV has always been there. Data integrity has always been there. I think what's, what's changing now is expansion of that focus on people and process. Great. 
Okay, um, we have another question around, and uh, any one of you can answer, um, <laughs> the concept of open versus closed systems and just really kind of laying out the, the definitions for those and how those, um, if those impact um, SAS, PASS, and cloud and, and CSA models today. Does anyone want to? Yeah. Yeah, so if you think about it, if you go back to the definitions of open systems and closed systems, right, the way it was defined in Part 11, open systems are defined as something that you are granting access to the system to people and you have no control over that, right? That, that's how the open system was defined. With the technology today, I, I think that that is over, almost over now. We don't have systems, even if it is vendor-hosted system, even if it is on cloud, whatever that is, the security is there, technology is there, right? And and we know who's accessing our systems. We are able to control that. Um, and and if you think about CSA, CSA is uh, it's not a new approach. It's it's nothing new. Again, it's just a different way of doc, you know shift your focus from documentation to critical thinking and what you test. Right, that's what CSA is about. So, I don't think there is a direct connection between closed systems, open systems, and CSA, really. And, and right, to add to that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rochelle. No, go ahead, Rochelle. <laughs> I was saying to, to add to that, I think we need to not look at it as hosted on-prem, SaaS, PaaS, right? It, the the requirements and the regulations are the regulations, right? It's who has that responsibility for it. If you're looking at a hosted solution, you're now in a shared partnership with the vendor and maybe the quality agreements and the vendor audit programs are are more important than some of the other elements of the testing versus if it's on-prem, 100% of the, the accountability is on the, on the company. So the requirements have been changed. It's really that rules and responsibilities, depending on which model you're going through and making sure that's pretty well outlined in whether it's your MSA, your SLAs, or, or your quality agreement. It's where is the data and who's responsible for the data and, and kind of that and as I, we mentioned during the discussion, right, the, the company is responsible for the data. So what are the controls that are in place, whether by you or by the vendor to ensure that? Great. I think there's a whole nother topic in there that we probably will do another panel on another time around vendor management and, and the shift towards that. And there's real implications for that around quality agreements, how to make those, how to enforce those, how to follow through on those. All those sorts of things are really great questions. I think I'm, not, we're, I think I'm supposed to close out soon. Um, and so there was one other question around um, networking and CSV and women in, in this industry. And so um, I know personally, I'll share and I think we all quickly go around. Um, we we do personal networking because there's no formal thing out there um, for CSV or nor CSV in women, right? Um, so I think we're creating this as we go along and we'll evolve. Um, I do know I do belong to Women in Bio, which is um, an organization that that focuses on all of life sciences um, in all different disciplines, and so I have great mentorship in in that. Um, organization as well. I think some of you do too, right? In yeah, I'm part of the Healthcare Business Women's Association, and they actually have an arm that's also technology, not CSV specific, but I love whoever said that. Very entrepreneurial. Excellent. But um, but yeah, so the Healthcare Business Women Association is also a very good network, um, women and men, because I think it's important to know that those organizations, you need both. You know, we, we need we need to, to, to have that close that gender parity, you know, working together. But um, that's another organization that I'm part of. 
The only other thing I would also say is, is often universities and colleges have a lot of great networking um, in women in different areas, too. So um, always going back to your roots and finding somewhere there. Um, all of us are available, um, can be reached via LinkedIn. Um, you guys have our names there, but we are easily found uh, on LinkedIn and can follow up as well. Let me see. So the last question that just came in was, um, what kind of interim process companies are undertaking to handle remote working situations with respect to moving from paper to paperless? Um, I, I, you know, Elise, if, uh, Elise actually did this transformation during COVID. They went to a rapid uh, DocuSign deployment um, uh, in January um, and quickly turned that around in order to keep their paper process moving because they didn't have yet established a paperless process. I think, um, Rich, Rochelle and Wendy, you guys kind of have a paperless process or hybrids of processes in place, correct? Yeah, what we ended up doing was putting in like an interim um, planned uh, or not planned, but an interim, I guess, deviation, if you want to talk, call it. But basically said um, that um, in the interim, while well, you know, during COVID and until, you know, we get, um, you know, all the other processes or anything else in place that we are going to. It was signed off by the right parties, allowing the use of DocuSign because that was the platform we had, allowing the DocuSign, using it for these purposes, why we felt it was okay and such. So that's what we did. And again, it was a, a really collaborative effort between the business that needed this as well as um, IT and our quality. So, and, and they all signed off on that vendor. I mean, I'm sorry, on that memo. Right. It would be, be leveraging your planned exception process or planned deviation, whatever it's called in, in your company, to document whatever paperless technology, whether it's DocuSign or some other platform, for whatever documents you're leveraging to sign off and having the right stakeholders. What's the risk in not having a validated process or whatever you're kind of bypassing within your QMS and documenting those mitigating controls during this time? Yeah, great. Great. Well, thank you all so much for joining for the live Q&A, you know, answering some of our attendees' questions. And just thank you all for your knowledge and for sharing with everybody. Great. Great. Thank, you. Right. thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Software Quality Today with Dora Gonzalez-Azevedo. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, tx3services.com, to your friends and colleagues. And please feel free to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. Also, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. You can also check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at tx3services. This has been a TX3 Services production. Join us next time for another edition of Software Quality Today.